This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. <clears throat> the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the war of the great day of God, the almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megeddon. This is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of it and now to the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now as we consider your word. Enlighten our minds. Lord, give faith to our hearts. Help us to see and give strength to our hands and feet to obey. May you be glorified in this time, and I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We return now to our study in the Apocalypse of John. Uh, This morning, uh, we will consider the verses that we have just read. Give me one moment, if you would. This morning, we turn to the sixth bowl. You remember that the judgments, the first judgments, were revealed in seal judgments from Revelation chapter 6, verses 6 through, chapter 6 through 18, chapter 8. And then there were the trumpet judgments that were revealed in chapters 9 through 11. This morning we come to now the sixth seal uh, that is, I'm sorry, the sixth bowl that is being poured out. The Lord says to the seven angels in chapter 6, 16, verse 1, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And just as the angels were called forth to go in judgment in the final days, uh, we remember that the angels were called forth to judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. Seven angels now go forth and pour out the bowls that have been filled with the wrath of God's righteous judgment upon those who have been storing up wrath for themselves because of their disobedience. These are those who bear the mark of the beast. Uh, They suffer because they have aligned themselves with the Antichrist. They have invested their hope in the God of this world, and they reap only sorrow. Not the God kind of sorrow that produces repentance, but worldly kind of sorrow that only produces despair. The wrath of God is a manifestation, as we've heard, of the righteousness of God, which is located in the holiness of God. You've heard over and over again, there is no wrath, properly speaking, in God. So that when God decrees to execute his justice, that judgment is a violation or is a pouring out of the violation of those who have sinned against his law. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse 5, the scriptures say, I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. Verse 7, the saints of all time say, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. May I say to you, as we are progressing in the 16th chapter, this is the point of the chapter. You you heard me say this now, it was three weeks ago. In a few moments, we will be considering who the kings of the East are. In a few moments, we will be considering Armageddon, or what the scriptures actually say, Harmageddon. Next week, we will be considering the seventh and final bowl. But if we miss the fact that what weaves bowls one through three together with bowls four through seven, is the holiness of God, then we miss the entire point of the 16th chapter altogether. 
Why is God pouring out his judgments in the first three bowls? Why is God pouring out his judgments in bowls four through seven? It is precisely because God is holy, holy, holy. Uh, not because God is angry, 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 but because God is holy, holy, holy. If you miss the point that the holiness of God is the thrust of the 16th chapter, and you focus your attention on who are these, these kings from the east, and, and that's the thing you focus on, you miss the point of the 16th chapter. If you um, are fixated on this idea of Armageddon, then you miss the point of the 16th chapter. You've been given, you have been given ears to hear, hear this. God will not tolerate sin forever. You have ears to hear, hear this. He will bring sin, Satan, and death to their final end. But not because God is full of wrath. Once again, because God is holy, holy, holy. For you, child of God, the Lord Jesus Christ has an encouraging commandment to his people. It is, it's not a suggestion. It's not even so much a warning. It is a command. And here it is. This verse 15. Stay awake. Here's God's command to you, his people. Stay awake. Stay clothed. Be ready. Stay awake. Stay clothed. Be ready. It is Christ's command to you, his people. Stay awake. Stay clothed. Be ready. No man knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return. Our Lord said that his return would come just like in the days of Noah. Men and women will be going along in their lives, unaware and unprepared. They will be storing up for themselves treasures on earth. And it will come about suddenly on that day, on the, the day of God, the Almighty. That men and women, women will have to give an account for their lives. The Lord said that he will come like a thief in the night. Thanks this morning with God's help, we shall consider the call to stay awake. For our Lord comes like a thief in the night. Three considerations, three points for our consideration this morning. Number one, kings of the whole world gather for war. Stay awake. Kings of the whole world gather for war. Stay awake. This is verses 12 through 15. The sixth angel pours out his bowl of God's wrath upon, listen, these are going to be kind of technical, but, but pay close attention, upon the great river Euphrates. And the result is that the river dries up, seemingly making a way for the kings of the east to now rush in. It's their opportunity to rush in and attack the people of God. In Revelation chapter 9, the sixth angel sounds the sixth trumpet, and there is a command from heaven. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Release them. These bound angels, we remember, are demonic forces that are held back by God's angels from pouring out their hatred upon the people of God. There is a barrier there. Uh, the demonic forces are not allowed. They are not permitted to pour out their anger because God is holding them back. These are four symbolic of another number. These four angels that are, that are being held back are symbolic of another number, 200 million. The four demonic angels, forces, are a symbolic number of another symbolic number, 200 million. 200 million represents the vast number of demonic forces that, that are so vast that only God truly knows their sum. That God, listen to this, is holding back. But that God now allows them to be released. The river Euphrates is symbolic for protection. It is a type of barrier that prevents enemies from invading, conquering, and oppressing God's people. God essentially says, release them. Let them go. John is given a vision of this barrier, this this hedge of protection, drying up or being removed. Are you with me? And as a result, the kings from the east see this now as their opportunity to rush in, overtake, and oppress the people of God. Let's give some more context. 
why is John using this this um, this phrase, the river Euphrates? The oppressors of Israel, they were Assyria and Babylon, and they lived beyond the river Euphrates. And the river served as a type of barrier, a border between Israel and the nations of the east that sought to oppress them. G.K. Beale makes the point that that water from the Euphrates River drying up is seen as having a twofold purpose. When the water dries up, there's two reasons for it. Here, here are the two reasons. They're either for deliverance or the reason is for judgment. When the water is removed, it's either so that God will deliver his people or so that God would judge his people. When the water was high, it was viewed as God saving his people or delivering his people from enemies who would love nothing more than to come in, rush in, invade, and overtake, oppress the people of God. But when waters were dried up, it was a dramatic scene. Uh, imagine the Mississippi River being nothing more than a bed of sand. I hear that it's been drying up lately, actually. It was viewed, the Euphrates Rivers, uh, when the river dried up, it was viewed as judgment from God. God is allowing our enemies to invade, as in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah. God is allowing our enemies uh, free access to us now. The enemies of Israel, kings from the east, Assyria, Babylon, from the east, saw this, would see this as their opportunity now to attack Israel. And here, John sees that God has allowed this river to dry up. And for what purpose? Is it for deliverance or is it for judgment? The answer is for both. God allows demonic forces that have been held back to rush in. God removes the barrier. Satan is unleashed. His demonic forces are running rampant throughout the streets, seeking to still kill and destroy. They are kings from the east. Now, who are these kings from the east? Let me say right off the bat, the kings from the east are not China and Russia. Not North Korea or Iraq. The imagery of kings coming from the east or from the, the vicinity of the Euphrates River was, listen to this, standard Old Testament prophetic language. Standard. For the enemies of Israel who would like to come in and invade and destroy. Not one specific nation, but for any nation who would attempt to come in, invade and destroy, they were given the label kings from the east. It was standard Old Testament prophetic language. Uh, Kim Riddlebarger, who I commend to you, explains, for those in the Roman Empire, the Euphrates River marked the boundary on the other side of which was their bitter enemy, the Parthians. But for the Jewish people, the Euphrates River served as the boundary across which their enemies would come, namely the Assyrian and Babylonians and Persian invaders. So for both the Romans, their enemies were on the east. For Israel, their enemies were also from the east. And this came to be a phrase used for anyone that would come and attempt to invade and overtake. The kings of the east does not represent or refer to the armies of Red China or North Korea. It's a standard expression of anyone among or a standard expression among the Jewish people for anyone. And I capitalize in my notes anyone that sought to invade, conquer and oppress Israel. This would also be true when we come to the 20th chapter. We are going to hear of northern empires. And what are their names? You know them. Gog and Magog. And we sit and we go, is that Russia and is that China? Rather, the point is that they are coming from the four corners of the world. God has said, release them. And from the four corners of the world, here come the demonic forces seeking to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know this? Well, in verse 14 of chapter 16, John refers to the kings of the world. Not just the kings of the east, but the kings of the world. They assemble to wage war against God's people. Not just kings from the east, but John says kings from all over. Kings from the entire, or we would say the four corners of the world, are seeking to come and make war against the church. So the kings of the east is simply a way of describing the global conspiracy. Global just before the return of Christ, in which Satan and his army attempt to oppose Christ and his church. Now, the first hearers would have understood this. 
The first jurors would have said, kings of the east, we know exactly what that means. Anyone who wants to uh, invade and, and oppress. So the river dries up. And God intends to use, let's get back to that point. God intends to use the river for both judgment and for deliverance. Now, how is that, how is that so? Verse 13. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, listen to this, like frogs. Uh, children, imagine what a frog feels like, right? They're slimy, they're slippery. Uh, they're even loud, aren't they? My, my mom, uh, for weird reasons in the summertime, has frogs in her, her um, yard. They are spirits, he says, though. They're not actually frogs. They're spirits. Spirits that are demonic. And here's what they do. They perform signs, perform signs, signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the, for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. As these, listen, uh, as these water barriers are removed... The unbeliever, the kings of the earth, believe because they are deceived by the unholy false trinity, the Satan, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, that this is now the time to attack the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been deceived into this. Just as Pharaoh and his chariots gathered to pursue Israel, when God dried up the waters of the Red Sea, so now the kings from the east gather to pursue and destroy the church. And as they do, John sees that out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet come unclean spirits like frogs. This, of course, is an, another echo of Egypt and the plague of the frogs. John receives this vision of these frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the Antichrist. What are frogs like? Well, we, we've said they're slippery and all those other things, but anytime that we see something coming out of the mouth of the dragon or any of the Antichrist, it's always referring to deception. When something is coming out of the mouth, specifically when it's referring to the dragon or the Antichrist, it's always something that is deceptive. The false, unholy trinity of Satan and his two Antichrists perpetuate lies and falsehood upon humanity. They are deceivers. Uh, they are using their words in a slick manner, the way that a frog is slick. Uh, G.K. Beale says that they croak loud, but their croaking has no substance. It's just loud noise. These men are used by Satan and his antichrist to perform signs that are meant to deceive the world into believing their falsehoods. Loud croaks, G.K. Beale says, are also meant to produce confusion. The goal of Satan is to gather opposition against Christ and his church. Satan is preparing an army. His army is recruited through deception. He is drawing them in with deceptive lies. He's gearing up for the great day of God, the Almighty. Satan, and this is a clear reminder also that all oppression and persecution for Christians around the world, it, it's fueled by satanic demonic activity. Uh, why, why do we see oppression? It's because of Satan. Why do we see opposition, opposition to the church? It's because of Satan. They are orchestrating a conspiracy among the kings and leaders of all the nations that is designed to utterly destroy the people of God. That's their conspiracy. Amen. We have a promise from our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the midst of this conspiracy, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Amen. Just as God created, God created the dry land. God, God removes the hedge in the midst of the sea so that Israel could safely pass through. It, it was their deliverance. God now symbolically dries up the Euphrates River to provide a final deliverance for his people. With the symbolic barrier of the Euphrates River removed, the enemies of God now rush in only to find themselves totally, totally defeated by God's direct intervention. Pharaoh and his chariots believed that the pagan gods were on their side. As the waters of the sea, of the Red Sea, were pushed back only to learn that there is only one God. And to find that his judgment, judgments were rushing upon them as the waters of the sea rescinded and covered them in judgment. 
There's two things happening. There's deliverance for God's people and there is judgment for the enemies of God. Happening at the same time. The kings of the world are those who are marked by the beast. And they will believe that they have finally, in this attack, they finally silenced the church. That the barrier has been removed and, and now they will receive their great victory. A victory for Satan. Only to find that victory is already ours in Christ. And that we are delivered from their attack. Notice that this great battle occurs on the great day of the Lord God Almighty. The same day that Christ declares that he will come like a thief in the night. The enemies of the east, they prepare themselves for battle. And they rush in for one last final opportunity to destroy the church. And it is on the same day that God delivers his people. And it is the same day that Christ comes like a thief in the night. The battle occurs on the day when Christ returns. We are in the midst of that gearing up for that great day. Satan has been released. And he is slowly but surely gathering his army for that last and final push, that last and final day, which is the, the day of God, the Almighty. When will that day be? We do not know. But they are already conspiring against us. They are already perpetuating lies against us. They are already deceived by Satan's lies. The frogs are croaking, saints. The war is intensifying. But we will not look to eastern nations to find out when it will begin. Could there be World War III? Yes, there could be. Could it be with nations that we've mentioned? Yes, it could be. Are these the things that are spoken about by John? I don't believe so. When Christ said it is finished and rose from the dead, the war was on. Where is this war? Second point. Um, Listen to the way I'm saying this. Har Mageddon. It's the way it says it in your Bible. The place of battle. Stay awake. Harmageddon, look at your Bible, don't look at me. Harmageddon, the place of the battle. Stay awake. Those of you who are giving me a strange look, like, why are you saying it that way? Because your Bible says it that way. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew was called Harmageddon. With the coming of the sixth bowl, the scene in the twelfth uh, verse now shifts from Uh, Various judgments upon the earth and its inhabitants to this final eschatological battle in which God crushes all of his enemies. It is called the great battle of. You've heard it right. Armageddon. Our scriptures should say Armageddon. This may be the first time that you've ever heard the word um, pronounced this way. Armageddon. You may have even heard it and say he's saying it wrong. Um. Until you saw that it's there in verse 16. We are accustomed to hearing the word Armageddon. You may have even heard of the phrase or know the phrase, the battle of Armageddon. Let me ask you, what is the battle of Armageddon? If you were to, someone to ask you as I'm doing now, what, what would be your immediate response? What's the battle of Armageddon? Well, <clears throat> there are a few who believe that this refers to the battle of the apocalypse or the battle that many believe is described, that is described in Revelation. Many believe it is the last and final battle as described in the Apocalypse of John or Revelation. What is this battle? Let's begin with a kind of a portion. So what I'm about to say for the next two or three minutes, maybe more, is not what it is. Okay? Let's begin with what it is not. The battle of Armageddon is not what comes at the end of a seven-year tribulation. All of us go, wait a minute. I, I heard that before. I'm sure you have. The seven-year tribulation is not marked by a secret rapture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which begins the tribulation. It is not the time when the church is spared from a time of tribulation or a time of woe, wherein those who have been left behind realize that they've been wrong about Christ, that they've been wrong about their belief in Christ and feel great sorrow and potentially repent of their sin. those who repent of their sin are not 144,000 Jewish national Jewish people. 
during this so-called tribulation, there will not be 144,000 converted Jews. They will not be put in jail, beaten, martyred, because they will not take the phys physical mark of the beast and pledge, and they will not um, suffer because they are not pledging allegiance to the Antichrist and his God, Satan. False teachers like John Hagee and Greg Laurie perpetuate a few of these things that I've just said. They will also say that there will be ten nations from the East, specific, specifically ten. And these ten nations will unite and persecute Christians during this tribulation, and their army will grow as large as 200 million, those who are against Christ and his church, who will continue, they say, to persecute believers and set their sights to destroy the land, the land, the land of Israel. With me? Jewish Christians will band together. They'll start uniting from all over the world until they finally go to, to Israel, the land. And they will fight, they believe, a battle on a, in a valley called Megiddo. Fight Satan's, Satan's army. The odds are insurmountable. But, but then, just as they begin to fight, just as Satan believes that he has won the victory, Christ returns and defeats Satan's army, Satan and his army for all time, once for all. Any of you grew up hearing all that stuff? Uh, probably uh, bits and pieces you'll say yes, some of them you might say no to. That's not what I believe the scripture, scriptures are teaching at all. Where is the place that the armies gather? Armageddon, or Armageddon, let me say this, is not about the nation of Israel. Nor will this battle take place on the plains of Megiddo. Rather, John's reference to Armageddon, Armageddon, is connected to the final eschatological battle between Christ and the dragon. It is the final day when Satan is allowed to unleash his full hatred against the church, only to find himself crushed by our victorious Christ, where he will be cast thereafter into the lake of fire forever. The place of this eschatological war, let's get to the real meaning of it now, is called Harmageddon. Literally, Har means Mount and Megiddo. Mount Megiddo. Let's be clear about this. There is no such place called Mount Megiddo on this physical earth. So that when the scriptures say the battle takes place at Mount Megiddo, there is no such physical place called Mount Megiddo. Those who believe that there is a literal place, a literal site, uh, you will be sadly disappointed because there is, again, no mountain called Megiddo. Megiddo itself is a valley. It's a large plain, and itself was an ancient city and Canaanite stronghold located on a plain in the southwest region of the Valley of Jezreel in Israel. It was a battlefield for Israel, so that when Megiddo was brought up, most people's minds would say, many battles have taken place there. Overlooking it on one side was Mount Tabor from which Deborah and Barak launched their assault against the Canaanites. Across the valley was Mount Geboa, where King Saul was slain by the Philistines. Behind Megiddo, that valley, was Mount Carmel, remember this, where Elijah conquered the false prophets of Baal. It was, a plain, it was on the plain of Megiddo that Gideon blew his trumpet and overthrew the Midianites. Lastly, it was there that the last godly king of Israel, Josiah, died in battle with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. G.K. Beale says, The battles of Israel associate with Megiddo in a typological manner. They become a symbol, not literal, but a symbol of the battle of the saints of God that fight against the enemy, which occurs throughout the entire world, not just in one particular place. So that Israel would have known that when we speak of Megiddo, we're speaking about a war that God's people has against God's enemies, but not in a literal place. John's audience, again, would have understood the symbolism. They would have known that John was not speaking about a literal battle or, and I'm sorry, a, a literal physical battle in a literal, literal physical valley because of the language that he uses. Again, Megiddo is a valley. It's a large plain. Listen to this. 
it is impossible for an army of one million to fit in that valley, let alone an army of 200 million to fit in that valley. Harmageddon is literally, here's the meaning, literally mount of gathering or mount of assembly. Well, what does that mean? What's it, what is it in reference to? Most likely a reference to Mount Zion, which is the earthly counterpart of the heavenly assembly. Where are you right now? When you gather to worship, where are we? Where are we gathered? What does Hebrews say about where we've gathered to worship? You have come to Mount Zion. The scriptures say that when you gather for worship, you are on Mount Zion. John says that when the saints gather, the saints for all time, we are we are gathering, but we are also spiritually fighting a battle in Zion. That we are fighting against demonic forces. That's where you are now. Uh, what is this what is this battle of Armageddon? It's what you are encountering on a day to day basis. It's what you are experiencing as you fight against Satan, sin, and the world on a day to day basis. You are fighting in Zion against demonic forces who seek to have you. Remember in chapter 14 of Revelation, we read that Jesus is standing triumphantly. Where is he standing? In Revelation 14, he's standing on Mount Zion. Um, who is he standing with by himself? No. He's standing with 144,000. And, and what name is upon them? The name of Father and Son is upon their foreheads forever. They are the true Israel because they are in true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are, they are fighting with him, but they are also standing as already victorious with him. John says that this battle in chapter 16 is the same battle from chapter 14. We are standing on Mount Zion already victorious. Because Christ is already victorious. Amen. They're standing ready for battle. Yeah. But we've already won. Amen. They stand and they sing a song of victory. Mm. Their song is like the song of many waters, like the loud thunder, like many harpists. But it's the sound of saints who are singing before the throne of God a song of victory. Amen. There is no bloodshed. None have been lost. Christ has not and will not lose any of his sheep. If this is true, that means that the reference to Armageddon is not a description of a literal military battle where there will be tanks and fighter jets that ultimately fight against a demonic force. Rather, that, that is seen in, in Kings from the East. Rather, it's apocalyptic language and an apocalyptic image. Of kings from all over the world gathering because their head has called them to gather Satan to war against the church. That seems to make more sense, doesn't it? That seems to be more, okay, that makes more sense. Could there be a great battle, a great World War Three? Yes, of course. Is that what this is talking about? No. The same event. From a different angle is presented in Revelation 19, where John sees the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire at the end. In Revelation 20, John sees those who were deceived by Satan devoured by the fire of God when they gather to oppose the church and they are thrown with Satan into the lake of fire. It's correct to think of Armageddon, Armageddon as the final and ultimate battle between Christ and his enemies. But it has nothing to do with the nation of Israel or the land of Jerusalem. Or the plains of the ghetto. John has been given an image of a final global assault against the church. But once again, the, hate, the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen. Um, when will this happen? Remember, it's a final battle. It's the last one. It will be a day. And on that day, Christ will return. So whenever that is, could be today. It could be tomorrow. Whenever that is, we need to stay awake. We need to be prepared. Because on that day, it will be the last day. The day that Satan is allowed to pour out all of his vitriol, all of his hate against the church, it will be his last day. It will be your last day on this present earth. Stay awake. Stay prepared. Satan is right now waging war against the church. He is right now permitted to deceive the nations as he is doing. 
He is presently gathering an army through deception. And they are marching against the church to ultimately surround and attack her. The scriptures do not tell us when this final battle will be, but more so how it happens. There is an ever-increasing expression of demonic activity. An ever-increasing expression of idolatry, of immorality, an ever-increasing persecution of Christians by a world system that hates God and his church that hates God and the truth. What is Satan's deception? I was thinking about it this morning. Satan's deception is not, um, hey, let's go die. Does that seem enticing to someone? Hey, guess what? Look, come on my side and we'll just all die together. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, he's using slick words. So what kind of... of what kind of slick words could would Satan be using to deceive people to bring them into his army? I believe that the lie that Satan perpetuates is, is this. What God commands and what God offers will not bring you peace and joy. I think that's the... I'm sure there's probably many other things, but as I was thinking about it, I think that's probably the biggest one. What God offers and what God commands will not ultimately bring you peace and joy. Think about it. If someone goes, follow Satan so you can die. It doesn't seem to be very enticing, does it? It doesn't seem to make someone go, yeah, sign me up for that. Rather, it seems as though Satan is, is not really changing his tactics. He's not giving nonsense. Nonsense would be, God doesn't even exist. Deep down in every creature, we know God exists. It's nonsense to, to, for someone to go, I just don't believe there's a God at all. Well, they're very, there's less of those people than you realize. There's more people who go, I just don't find peace there. I, I don't find joy there. And that's, I believe, Satan's deception. It's the same as it was in the garden, isn't it? All these things... Are yours. But he's not going to let you have this. Seems like he's keeping you from true peace and fulfillment. Um, the true pursuit of joy, it seems to be withheld from you. You know that you'll actually find it if you break his command. Because what he has for you, um, in the end, is not going to bring you full peace and, and fullness of joy. But if you go this route, you'll find it, and you'll find it faster than God will give it to you. Um, Saints, I'm going to get maybe a little technical. All things are in process of attaining their full act. Where there is completeness. But full act means completeness, wholeness. All things are in, in process of attaining that. Until then, we, we live in this... Potency. We live in this longingness for fullness. We live in this longingness for completeness. All of you do this. All of us do this. The lie of Satan is that you can have fullness of what you are seeking in those things that God has forbade. Because what God is, is commanding you is, will bring you no fullness. The push is fueled by deception. And, and it's this. Pursue what satisfies because, and whatever that is in here, right? Whatever makes you happy, that's the push. So man follows their their wicked hearts to empty places. The church is saying, um, you will find fullness of joy in Christ. And Satan has deceived the world into saying, no, you, you will not. Let me get back to that moment. You you eat what you eat. You you crave what you, I'll get to this in the next point. You crave what you because you're looking for a, a certain type of satisfaction. You're looking for a certain type of fullness. But it's always fleeting, isn't it? It never really lasts. It's never as good as the some sometimes the last bite is as good as the first. But it doesn't last, does it? It, it fades. And Satan, his deception is will keep going after it, and, and you'll eventually get there. 
But it's not within the parameters that God has made. It's outside of his parameters. That's where you find it. The world is deceived by Satan. To attack the church who bear the truth in order to silence the call to come to the one who actually gives you peace, joy, and then also rest from your toiling so that you can find joy and completeness in him. Satan says, silence them. Close their mouths. Attack them. As these acts of sin increase, the church will increasingly experience, a, on a global scale, opposition. But we have a wonderful promise to stand upon. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Yeah. We're going to get to more of this joy in the third point. Christ, who is our victorious head, promises that victory, his victory, is also our victory. Because we are in him. Therefore, as opposition increases, the body of Christ can take comfort in knowing that because Christ is victorious over his enemies, we too are victorious over our enemies. In Revelation 20, Christ appears at the moment that Satan attempts to unleash his attack. You notice that in chapter 16, they gather for a war, but there's actually no war that takes place. They're there. They're ready to fight. But none of our blood is shed. Not to say that we won't physically die, but we won't be lost. They're there for battle. They're ready to do this. But there is no war. The war has already been won. Our Christ, beautiful image. In chapter 20, just as the battle is about to take place, our, our Christ appears. And he appears mounted on a white horse. A white horse of war. Take that for an image. Christ who holds the lamb now shows up on a, a war horse with a sword. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. And here's what he does. From his mouth does not come frogs, but a sharp sword which, with which he strikes the nations down. <laughs> Symbolically, these demonic forces from all over the world have united in their opposition against the church. They put forth their final effort to eradicate, eradicate the people of God. And just as they do. Just like Egypt found out that our God fights for his people. Amen. And he sweeps them away with one final judgment. Yeah. Harmageddon. You can correct your friends now. What is it? You want to know what it is? Very simply. It's verse 14. The great day of God the Almighty. That's what it is. What is it? The great day of God the Almighty. When Christ destroys Satan his evil powers, rescues his bride through final judgment and resurrection unto life and consummates his eternal reign over all creation. That's Armageddon. Number three, finally, stay awake, stay ready. It's, your, it's the final point, so stay awake, right? Stay awake. Verse 15, let's read it. In the midst of all of this, Christ says to us, his people, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see, men will not see his shame. If, and since the holiness of God is what, what weaves the first three bowls and the last four bowls together, then it is our responsibility to be alert to the return of Christ. As John receives the vision of the sixth bowl and the kings of the whole world gather to oppose the church, and display their allegiance to the dragon. In the midst of all this, our Lord commands you, his people, to be ever vigilant, to be awake, for he will return like a thief in the night. Let's get clear about this. Most likely, Christ is not saying that he's going to come in the middle of the night when we're all asleep. I think we're all aware of that, right? He's, you're not going to wake up and go, what? Where did everybody go? That's that most likely not what Christ is saying. But John remembers the parable of our Lord told when Christ tells the parable of the thief of the night. The thief comes when when we're not expecting him, or else the owner of the house would have been prepared. Matthew twenty four verse thirty seven. For the coming of the Son of Man, listen to this, will be just like in the days of Noah. Now watch, for in those days. Before the flood, they were eating 
drinking, marrying, and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand the flood. They did not understand the flood came and took them all away. So will the, the coming of the Son of Man be. There will be two men, one in the field, one taken, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one taken, one left. Let's deal with this. What are the days of Noah? Um, anybody eat today or yesterday? I did. Anybody drink anything today, yesterday? I did. We're, we're, so we're eating and drinking. Check, check. Um, some of us have been married, are, are being married, are looking forward to the day when we give our children away in marriage. Some of us work in the fields. We're working at the mill, aren't we? These things have been occurring since the days of Noah and then after the days of Noah. So what does our Lord mean when he says that prior to his return, people will behave as they did in the days of Noah? Let's build something here. First Peter chapter two and verse five declares that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. When God or as God surveys the world and concludes that all of man's thoughts were wicked all the time and that man only pursued the desires that satisfied his wicked heart. He decreed from all time that men would be judged for their sin and violation of God's holiness. Yes. From men, God elected to save Noah, you know this, and his family. God warned Noah that he would judge mankind through floodwaters. The floodwaters would be a kind of decreation of creation. And he commanded Noah to build an ark, or more literally, an entombment, where he and his family and two of every kind of creature would find refuge from God's wrath upon sin. Follow me. For 100 years, Noah and potentially his family, I'm sure, built labor to build a place to hide from God's judgment. During that time, Noah did not only build an ark, but he proclaimed the coming judgment of God upon sin. And he pleaded with his fellow man to repent of their sin and turn to God in forgiveness or forgiveness. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, if not for 100 years, for nearly 100 years. For 100 or nearly 100 years, his message of repentance and faith were ignored and even scoffed at. Follow me. For 100 or nearly 100 years, his message of righteousness in Christ was spat upon as mankind continued to live as they had always lived, marrying giving theirs in marriage, working in fields, at the mill, and the like, listen to this, with no regard to the God of heaven and earth, their maker. The preacher of righteousness, who warned that his ark was being constructed to, to escape the coming judgment of God by water, that, that men should repent of their sin, turn to God, before it was too late, he, that man, that preacher of righteousness, was de deemed a lunatic. He's crazy. Dear ones, what do you think of your preachers of righteousness in this church that have been provided for you? Little ones, what do you conclude about the men who stand before you week after week and call you to behold the body and blood of Christ? What do you think of the man who stands before, before you week after week yelling as I do, making hand motions as I do? Will you grow up saying he was crazy? I pray that your conclusion about us and any man who preaches turn to Christ and live. I pray that your conclusion about them will be thankfulness. I thank God that there was a man when I was a child who was preaching to me truth. I pray that you will grow up and that you will never forget our voice, that you'll never forget our face, that you'll never forget the intensity with which we preached. As we called you to Christ, to come to Christ and live. I pray that you would not scoff at your preachers of righteousness. That you would not make the same grave mistake that the, day, that people, in the, day, the people in the days of Noah did. It is an irreversible mistake. In the days of Noah. As Noah continued to preach righteousness. And as they continued to scoff at him. 
Until one day rain fell like they'd never felt rain fall before. Until one day waters began to spring up from the ground and fall from the sky. Rivers and lakes and seas overflowed and rose above the heights of the highest mountains, covering the entire face of the world. And there was Noah, the preacher of righteousness, along with his family, entombed in refuge. The refuge from the wrath of God, the ark. The days of Noah are this. The days when men will not endure or tolerate sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and aside and turn them aside to myths. Second Timothy 4. What does John say concerning the last days? He sees the dragon use his antichrist to deceive. The demons are sent forth to blind the eyes, to stop the ears of men from seeing and hearing the truth. He sees that men are mesmerized by slick, slick talkers, men slick like frog talkers who do not exalt God, but exalt men. They're enchanted by their false signs. They're starry eyed over their potential prosperity that they might get by sitting under a preacher like them, a false preacher like them, a false teacher or talker like them. Paul encourages his young disciple, Timothy. But as for you, listen to these three ways. Use self-restraint. As for you, be watchful in all things. I like this one. As for you, keep your head. In all situations, keep your head. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, he commanded his disciples, watch and pray. Here in Revelation, in the midst of spiritual war, the Lord exhorts his people, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the man who stays awake. Keep your clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will see his shame. Our Lord is not saying that it is a sin to marry. He's not also saying it's a sin to give your children in marriage. Nor is he saying it's a sin to work. Do these things. Here's what our Lord warns. In all of these things, don't fall asleep. In all of these things, be alert. In all of these things, be expecting. Christ will return at any moment. Be expecting. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on this present world as if here you will find your greatest joy apart from Christ. There awaits for those who trust in Christ and for those who endure until the end a fullness of joy. In Christ there is joy. And Christ promises that if you remain in him, you will attain fullness of joy. Our Lord promised a fullness of joy that is found in remaining in his love, which is a Trinitarian love. Listen to this. You can turn it if you'd like. John 15, 9. Just as the Father loved me. Listen to this. I have also loved you. Remain in my love. Now watch. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that... My joy may be in you. Now watch what he does. And that your joy may be full. Amen. Okay, we'll get back to what we said in our second point. Saints, what do you want most? I, whenever I ask my son a question, I say the first thing that came to your mind is what you want. What do you want most? And even if you had, you know, I want my kids to be saved. I want our job. I want a better job. I I'd like to have a, a raise. I, I, I'd like to have a better house. I, man, I wish I had a better... Whatever came to your mind, you, you're wanting those things because you think that in those things there will be a type of satisfaction that you will receive. You, we want those things because in those things we think that there's a type of fullness of joy that we will have. That there's a type of, of completeness that we will get by those things. It's not just those things. It's what you think those things will give you. A, a fullness, a satisfaction of some sort. It's what we all want. You don't just want joy. You don't want any kind of joy. You want a fullness of joy. You want complete joy. You want joy that never goes away. You want peace and fullness that never depart. You get it in spurts, don't you? <coughs> we, find, we find joy in many things. In marriage, you get it uh, in, in spurts, don't you? It's a great day. Then you have your days where... 
It wasn't so much of a great day. I still love, but it wasn't the best day of all days. We find it in seeing our loved ones marry, right? We find, wow, they're, they're going off. And yet, in their marriages, they will have hard days. You find great joy until they call and say, you can't, I'm not, you're not going to believe what he said to me. You, Mom, Dad, you're not going to believe what she said to me. You find it in work, don't you? You find joy in some ways in work. There, there are certain days, where you, what a great day. We made so much money today. But then tomorrow is lean. And the rest of the month is lean. And then you don't actually get called out to work. There are these ebbs and flows of joy, but it's it's that thing that you eventually get every once in a while that you go, I wish that could just remain. I wish that could just stay here forever. We'll do that this afternoon with food. There's a certain food that I like. It's it's my my wife will tell you. Hopefully she doesn't. It's my Lord's Day meal. It's that thing that that my dad used to make for me when I was a kid that I eat every Lord's Day, and I have to have a, a either strawberry or orange or Sprite drink soda with me. Strawberry crush, orange crush. Or Sprite. That, that's ah, the end of the day. Some people smoke a cigar, cigarette, whatever. You, some people have a beer. It's that food and, a, and an orange soda or, or a strawberry Coke. That's, that's what I like. But it, it's fleeting. It doesn't last. It never reaches its full potential. Full potential is that it never leaves. All things are lacking their pure act, their full potential, their their full completeness. They're always remaining in potential, but never attaining it in this life. The deception of the enemy is that you can have it now. Through disobedience to God, you can have the full potential of whatever you desire, whatever fills you now. But it must be. But if you want it, you got to get it elsewhere. If you want it, you can't find it in God. You've got to find it somewhere else, namely through disobedience to God. Um. Stay awake. Keep your head. Be watchful. Be alert. Christ offers a share, listen to this, a partaking in the divine life that he has eternally possessed in love between Father, Son, and Spirit. He offers it to you. Now, Christ, who is eternal Son, yes, Perfect word of the Father, intellect and wisdom of the Father, without beginning or end, loved by the Father. The Son offers His love by way of the Spirit who is love. He, he offers it to you. Now, why? Let's see what the Spirit does. The Spirit imputes the righteousness of Christ to all who believe and infuses us with grace to cooperate with His inner work so that we can share in this divine life. Follow me. Because it's God who works both in you to will and to do. Now, this work of the triune God produces love in the one who is loved from the lover that results or is evidenced by obedience to the one who has loved you with an everlasting love. One theologian says beautifully, the father kissed the son, the son is kissed and the Holy Spirit is the kiss. And by faith in the son, we can partake in that divine love. Christ says, that it is by obedience that we remain in love. Do you love? Then, then obey. And it is out of our love for Christ that we long to obey him. The one who loves says, not my will, O Lord, but yours be done. The one who loves says, teach, teach me your statutes that I may obey them all the days of my life. The one who loves says, your law is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. That's, the, that's what the one who loves does. Who is loved does, I should say. And who loves. Christ says, and if you remain in that, you will have what you most desire. Ready? Complete joy. Or what he says, fullness of joy. If you, rem- It will ultimately lead you to fullness of joy. <laughs> Not just joy, but the actuality of joy. No longer the just growing in joy, but you, you will ultimately, through this growth of joy, reach its full act, its full potential, fullness of joy. And it won't ebb and flow. It won't be up today and down tomorrow. It will be full, never ending. Our lives on this earth 
as we live for Christ, they increase in joy. They do. They do. We can live, as Isaiah said this morning, we can live God life now. Uh, we can, through love and obedience, increase in joy until finally we receive fullness of beatific beatitude and glory. When we are given what Christ has, listen to this, what Christ has. We, when we are given what Christ has, beatific vision. The beholding of the one who loves. The beholding of, and that vision satisfies forever. That vision gives you fullness of joy. Now notice, Christ says that he's spoken these things so that, that, that his joy, that, so that our joy may be like his. But what does he say our joy will be? He says fullness of joy. But before he says, so that you'll have fullness of joy, he says, so that you'll have joy like I do, which is fullness of joy. How is fullness of joy achieved? It's, it's by beholding the one who loves. Christ says that through our love and obedience, we will have complete joy, the joy that comes from beholding God. Do you want to see God? Do you know that you're seeing God is going to satisfy you forever. Those who are who are aligned with the beast, they will not be able to see God in the manner in which they will only see God by way of judgment, wrath, right? You will see God by way of love and intimacy. And that kind of of that moment will satisfy you forever. Uh, I remember, he might correct me, but I think it's true. Uh, I remember the, the moment when I um, performed the ceremony of wedding for Anthony and Hilda. I, I believe there was a tear in his eye. He might correct me later. But there was a vision that he had of seeing his wife. I, re- I remember when I saw my wife, my wife will say, you didn't cry. I, I, all, all, all the guys cry. And I just, you're gorgeous. I didn't bring me to tears though. But it's a it's a vision that I will never that will never escape my eyes. Seeing my beautiful wife walk from around the the trees as she did and around the grass and then down. Wives, you remember seeing your husband standing there waiting. And if you've never experienced that, you've seen it. When we behold our God. Something, not exactly, but something akin to that will be ours forever and it will never leave our soul. It will always, always satisfy. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because Satan wants you to think that satisfaction and fullness of joy is found somewhere else. Because Satan wants to deceive you into thinking that you can find fullness of joy outside of God and his Christ, and you can't. And you won't. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you so that your joy may be, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. His joy is a fullness of joy. And if you want that, then go to Christ. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Christ possesses fullness of joy. This is why Christ could communicate divine things about the Father that no one had ever said before. Because he knew him in such an intimate way that no one else had ever known. That's why he can um, promise that he will give the Holy Spirit from the Father. No one has ever said that before. That's why Christ can say about the day that he will return that no one knows the day or the hour, but be ready. Because he knows the day and the hour. Do you want fullness of joy? I think that's what we all crave. Satan will say, go my way. Pursue me. Abandon your faith. You will find it. In closing, keep your head. Be alert. Stay awake. Be watchful. Your enemy roams around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Stay clothed so that you will not be ashamed. When you are clothed in the good, the goods of those of the world, you're not you're not clothed in Christ. Christ is, is, is simply saying, be ready. That's all that means. Be ready. Amen. Be prepared for his arrival.
Romans 13, put on Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Ephesians 4, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in the righteousness and holiness. In closing, finally, we must be prepared for the return of Christ. On that day, God will bring us through Christ's fullness of joy. May I encourage you, think about things as you are staying alert. Think about things that are about the building of the kingdom that you can do as, as staying alert. Think about how you can better the world through your actions as a Christian as you stay alert. Advance and ask God to help you advance in being made like his son as you stay awake and stay clothed. I had a number of suggestions. Give, work, contemplate, read. It takes us a little bit longer. But we can talk about those things during our break. Let me say finally this. Stay awake. Stay alert. Our Christ will return. And when he does, his promise to you is fullness of joy. Amen. And that's what we want. Amen. If our minds are shifted to Red China, North Korea, you're missing the point. God is holy. Christ will return and he will give fullness of joy to all those who remain in him. Let's pray. Amen.